0: All right, Salt Company, it's good to be with you guys. You guys can take a seat. All right. Hey, can we give it up one more time for Leo and the band? Oh, crushing it. Two lucky winners. If you have a silver Toyota Corolla, you're still out there, man. You're gonna wanna move that sucker. This woman called the police like 15 minutes ago, so I'll move your little butt. Okay, second person. Light blue Hyundai Entourage, Entourage. If that I'll get up like ASAP Rocky. I mean, she was mad, so you're gonna wanna move. God, I got towed twice in college. It was tough, man. It is a depressing place the tow yard is. Wouldn't want you to be there tomorrow. Okay. But for real though, don't park there, otherwise they're gonna get mad at us, okay? So park on the right side of Portland, not on the wrong side of Portland. Read the signs. All right. All right, gonna be back. Uh, Hey, we are continuing our series in the peace of God. We're almost done. It's our final installment of the series. That's right. Romans, baby, let's go. Romans chapter seven is where we're gonna be. If you got a Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter seven. Romans chapter seven. I'm so sorry guys, last week I preached for 44 minutes. I am so sorry. That's like half a movie. Oh, uh, we're going to be a little shorter tonight. Romans chapter 7 is where we're going to be turned there. Next week, we're doing a standalone sermon in Acts chapter 4 as we look at how God uses normal people to change the world. I'm really excited about that one. But tonight we're going to be in Romans chapter 7. Let me pray, and then we'll jump into our time together. Father, for thank you for nights like this. Thank you that we get to gather together. Thank you that in the city of St. Paul, your name is being lifted high, that there's worship happening in this place, that the Bible will be taught, that the gospel will be proclaimed. And Father, would that be a sweet aroma for you? Would that be a sweet sound to your ears to hear hundreds of college students singing your praises? Father, I pray for all of our hearts that you would quiet our hearts, that you would settle our souls, that our ears would be open to hearing what you want to say to us. And Father, I pray that the Spirit would be heavy in this place. Father, thank you for your faithfulness to us. And you know we pray. Amen. Have you guys ever experienced instant regret? You know? Much like much like when you have one slice of pizza left and you offer it to your friend because you're a Christian, and they say yes, and you're like, no! Why would you say yes to that? Okay, I have a story for you guys. I told this story three years ago in the basement, but very few of you guys were there, so let's repeat this sucker. Okay, back in the, seventh, the sixth grade, this is the story of my first kiss. Oh, yes, that's right. It's a delightful story. Let me set you the scene. We're in Paris slash Apple Valley, Minnesota. You guys been there, go Eagles, baby, okay. We're in Apple Valley, I'm three feet tall and chubby. That is the setting, still insecure about that. Moving on, I'm three feet tall, I was dating this girl named Kira, she was probably a foot taller than me, she felt like she was twice my height, okay? She was such a tall person. I asked her on a date, I'm like, hey, can we go you know, hang out? And she's like, absolutely, can I bring my dog? And I was like, why would you do that, but yes. Nothing will impede the mission. You pre planned the kiss for years, you know? You're like, this is gonna happen. Go on a walk, because that's what you do with dogs. Immediate bad sign. Go on a walk, we're walking around the neighborhood. She's twice my height. We're moving at a certain amount of speed. There's a dog in front of us, not romantic at all, but I had in my mind, I'm gonna do it, okay? So I shoot my shot, okay? Mid-step, no lie, like not even pausing for this moment. Mid-step, we are walking in unison. She's twice my height. I jump, you know, and I, I go for the kiss. And I straight up hit the bottom of her chin. Like I'm not even kidding. Like I didn't even get to the lips, you know? Like the lips felt like miles away from me. Hit the bottom of her chin, instant regret. Instant regret, like I'm telling you guys, the rest of the walk, we walked in silence. Like just think about the pain in my soul. Like it was a riveting experience. Gave up on romance right there. I was like, this is not, not possible. Just kidding, I'm married, my wife's great, but she's great. Which, fun fact, my wife is actually taller than me. Yes, very exciting, yup. Anyways, that's, it was a tough story. Instant regret, you know? You know when you do something and you're like, why did I do that? Like, golly, like, that was such a dumb move. Like, why didn't I sit down on a bench so we could be equals, you know? Like, why why did I attempt the moving kiss? Instant regret when you do something that you hate that you did. I think all of us have experienced moments like this. On a more serious note, man, have I experienced so much regret in my life. I remember when I was 16, I told God when I got saved that I was never going to watch porn again which is a bold move, but I was 16, you know. I was like, I'm never going to do it. And then for years, every single time, instant regret. I remember freshman year, leaving my freshman girls' dorm room at 2 a.m. on a weekend, telling myself I'll never do it again. Instant regret. Or driving home from the casino when I was addicted to gambling as an adult, telling God I'll never do it again instant regret. Man, isn't this just a part of life? Like you say you're going to do things, you're like, man, God, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to live a Roman 6 type of life where it takes sin seriously and no longer enslaves me and I get to live in the freedom of grace. You tell yourself, I'm never going to do it anymore. And then moment after moment after moment you fall with instant regret. Okay, that's the conversation we're going to be having tonight, Salt Company. How do we live lives not defined by regret? Two simple things that we're gonna look at in Romans chapter seven. We need to live lives defined by humility and lives defined by power. Romans seven, verse 15, here we are. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good, So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Okay, this is one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible for two reasons. One, it's oddly encouraging. Okay, here's why it's encouraging. If you've ever been in a really painful situation, you just lost someone that you loved, you're going through a deep season of depression, You had a breakup with someone that you thought you were going to marry. If you've ever been in a really painful situation, you know how encouraging it is when someone who's outside of your situation puts language to how you feel. You feel broken and confused and angry and you're not sure what's going on. And they're like, okay, here's what's true. You're going through a couple stages of grief right now. Here's what's true. You wanted something of that relationship and you didn't get it. They're putting language to your experience, and it's oddly encouraging, even if what they're saying to you is really, really hard. Here's what Paul is trying to do here in Romans chapter seven He's trying to put language to the experience of a Christian. Man, guys, Paul wrote the previous chapter. He knows what it's like to take sin seriously, and yet, even though he wants to take sin seriously, he still does what he does not want to do. He doesn't even understand his own actions. So it's oddly encouraging in that sense. The second reason why it's encouraging is because the Bible is so honest, okay? Just give me a second to nerd out. This is fantastic stuff. Think about this. Every other ancient piece of literature, the heroes are like beautiful and perfect, you know? Like Captain America, ooh. Best guy ever in chiseled abs and he just runs around you, you know? That's every other piece of ancient literature. They all got heroes that you're supposed to look at and try to emulate or be like. The Bible is not about certain people being heroes, but every single character in the Bible is broken, a sinner, in need of grace, and that shows in light of their beautiful God. See, what the Bible isn't trying to do is trying to persuade you to follow any single person. Paul wrote this book, but he's not trying to get you to worship him. He's trying to get you to see that he is broken, but God is beautiful. See, the beauty of the Bible is it's not trying to lie to you, it's not trying to convince you of a fable or a mythology, it is the word of God to show us how God uses broken people for his glory and their good. And I think this is really important for some of you because you grew up in a religious circle or church tradition where you always saw the priest or the pastor or the leader as functionally sinless, functionally without weakness, and that culture of religiosity has created people who either worship man or are broken by them. So you grew up in a church culture where the pastor or the priest or whoever, they were the people that you were supposed to look to. You were supposed to look to them for leadership. You were supposed to look to them to show you who God was. And so maybe you actually have some idolatry of religious leadership or on the other side where deconstruction happens, is when that person actually shows their weakness and their sin. And maybe it isn't through their sermons or from the stage, but you see it in the background. You see the story come out about their life and you start to realize that they are a person with inconsistencies and weaknesses and sin and brokenness. See, I think the reason why I talk about this right now is because Paul wants to do for you what many of your religious leaders never did. He wants to actually be honest about his brokenness and his sin. And guys, even as I was thinking about this, I was like, man, we're a pretty casual culture, you know, talk about getting towed, you know, all that kind of stuff. But when I was thinking about this, I'm like, man, I want you guys to know that the pastors of Redemption Church have an immense amount of sin in their life. Now, it's, you know, being repented of and, you know, it's not like hidden sin, but, you know, there's so much wrong with us, man, and that's so important for you. Because religious leaders and pastors and priests and all these other people were never meant to receive the glory you were supposed to see through the brokenness of people to see to the beauty of God. Much like the story of the Bible and much like what Paul is doing for us here. And the second thing that I see in this that I think is really important is the humility of Paul. Guys, I want you to think about this. Paul was an apostle, okay? So he's kind of a big deal, you know? (laughs) Big deal Paul. He was maybe the second most influential person to ever live behind Jesus, started the greatest movement of church planting to reach literally billions of people to this day. And yet, he doesn't understand what he does. He does what he does not want to do, and what he does, he hates. Paul is showing us the humility of what it means to be a mature Christian. So I want you to write this down if you're taking notes, that humility is the sign of maturity. The fastest way you can find out if someone's actually a mature follower of Jesus is not how much they post. It's not how many Bible verses they know. It's not how cleaned up their life looks like from the outside. The fastest way for you to find out if someone is a mature follower of Jesus is if they're honest about their weakness. They're honest about their sin. They're quick to repent of their brokenness. That is the fastest way to find out if someone is a mature follower of Jesus. And Saul, come and listen to me. If humility is not defining your life, then you're not. When someone would look at your life, what would they say about you? Would they say that you're someone who exemplifies the humility of Christ, when they say that you're honest about your weaknesses and your sin and your brokenness? Are they someone, are you someone who's quick to confess the ways that you've transgressed others? Or are you prideful in your approach towards people? Holding on to your desires and your needs and your wants and your thoughts? Rick Warren says this: humility isn't denying your strengths, it's being honest about your weaknesses. Humility isn't thinking of yourself as less, it's thinking of yourself rightly. And guys, listen. This is what humility looks like. When you face a holy and righteous God, the only response is to realize that you're not that big of a deal. No matter how much people amp you up, no matter how cool you feel when you walk into rooms like this, no matter how smart you think you are, if you're gonna change the world and you're gonna be the next Elon Musk. In light of who God is, you are not that big of a deal. And the second truth of you is that you are a sinner in need of grace daily. And here's what can happen for some of you guys. Like, I've experienced this, man. Like, I I have this temptation. You become a Christian, you're like, yes, Jesus, woo, awesome. You get baptized, dunked, awesome, great. You're in community, you maybe become a student leader. And then you start to think that you've graduated from sin. You don't need to confess anymore because you conquered it. You don't need to be weak and honest anymore because you're like, that used to be stuff you used to do, but now you don't do that anymore. But hear me on this, all company. You are most susceptible to your sin when you're not being sensitive to the spirit. And the one thing that will rob you from being able to live a life of maturity in Christ is not your weakness, it's actually your pride. I have a quote that I was reading today from Wesley Duell, and here's what he says. Satan's own downfall was through his pride. Pride makes us more like Satan and less like Christ. Pride will cause God to turn his face away from us. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Listen, Saul, coming in your heart of hearts if you're thinking to yourself, man, Tony, that's great for some people, but I am kind of a big deal. I don't need to confess my sin. I'm actually pretty holy. Here's what's true. You are blinded by your pride. And you've walked in here with some false sense of security from either religion or secularism, but either way, it's built on comparing yourself to others, not actually receiving an identity in Christ. And your pride is making you look more like Satan and less like Christ. Julie told me this quote one day that that was really helpful. She talked about how Christian humility is not saying when you look at a certain sin, I could never do that, but it's actually saying I could do that. Pause there. So my mentor and my pastor's name is Drew. We walk around when we're together because we're trying not to get a dad bod, you know? So we move. We're like, yes. We don't just sit in our offices. We're like, let's walk, let's walk, let's talk. Okay. Talking with Drew. I'm 21 years old, fresh out of college great ambitions for my life, you know? Very impressionable. Talking to Drew, and he talks to me about his life. Now keep in mind, guys, Drew has five kids, which is so many, there's so many kids, and they're so cute, but also terrifying. I babysit them, and it's a war zone, okay? It is like not easy, they manipulate me, it's a whole thing, I'm kinda hurt by it. Anyways, moving on. Five kids, incredible wife, Melissa, she's like literally the coolest person you'll ever meet pastors Redemption Church, a gospel-believing church. He's a man of incredibly high character and someone I respect a ton. We go on this walk, and I'm 21, and he says, you know, Tony, here's something that's really important to understand about life. He said, I am three small mistakes away from ruining my life. Three small mistakes away from my kids resenting me, my wife maybe leaving me, and the church firing me. And I was like, that's dark, okay? I'm 21, give me some encouragement. I thought about that, I'm like, man, isn't that Romans 7? It's realizing, dude, you have not graduated from your sin. If Drew, my pastor, is three mistakes are ruining his life, I'm like one and a half and you're one, you know? You're one mistake away from ruining your life. Like, oh, this one mistake, oh my gosh, my life's over. Like, that's actually true. All of us are way closer to ruining our lives than we would be comfortable admitting. And humility is this. It's not looking at a certain sin that you see other people do and saying, I could never do that. It's looking at that sin and saying, I could absolutely do that. When you see stories of people committing adultery in Hollywood, it's not saying, listen, only celebrities do that. It's saying, I see that same sin in me. I see the way I covet other people's things, other people's spouses, other people's girlfriends. I see that same thing in me. And if that thing isn't drawn up by the Spirit and crushed, I will do the same thing. When you see alcoholics slumped over a bar stool because they drink their nights away and their alcoholism has led to divorce or abuse or whatever it is, it's not looking at the alcoholics and saying, listen, I could never do that. It's looking at that and saying, I could absolutely do that. Humility is not saying I could never. It's saying I absolutely could. Okay, so here's the application from this point that I think we need to learn from Paul. Here's the application. Trust yourself less. Guys, our culture says sayings like believe in yourself, bet on yourself, self-actualize yourself. The Bible wants to call you to trust yourself less. Pride is what makes us push the envelope of sin and makes us live a life of regret. It is your pride that will get you into places around people that will destroy your walk with Jesus. You need to realize that your flesh is not the person you should be listening to the most about how to live your life. Trust yourself less. Second thing we need is we need to live a life defined by power. Verse 17 says, 18 says this, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it but sin that dwells in me. Okay, guys, this is the pivotal moment right here. Think about what he says. He says, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Here's what Paul's saying. He knows he has the desire. He wants to live a Roman six type of life. He wants to live a life of holiness and righteousness and faithfulness to God. He has the desire, but not the ability. Here's what I want you to understand. Paul recognizes rightly in his life, there's a gap between his desires and his decisions. There's a gap between what he wants his life to look like and what he actually does. And that right there is why religion and moralism is so bankrupt. Okay, here's what religion tells us to do. As long as you know the rules, you'll do it. If you do the rules, then you'll be happy and holy. And what it doesn't produce is happy, holy, and free people. It produces people that feel shackled to shame and guilt because they're being told to fulfill a list of commands that they do not have the power to fulfill. It's like telling someone who is paralyzed to go run a marathon. This is what religion is like. Hey, all you have to do is sign up for the race. All you have to do is run the 26.2 miles. All you have to do is run on a road, and the paralyzed person would look at that person and say, I do not have the power in my legs. Religion is asking people to fulfill laws that they do not have the power to fulfill. It is impossible and effective because you can keep people in shame and guilt cycles forever. And maybe that's been your experience of Christianity. And you're thinking to yourself, man, all I've experienced my entire life is people telling me to do things that I cannot do to fulfill rules that I do not have the power to do. I try to do them and I fail. I try to do them and I fail. So then you get stuck in this shame and guilt cycle and you're wondering, is that actually what Christianity is all about? The distinction between the gospel and religion is this. In religion, you spin your wheels trying to do things, fulfill God's promises that you cannot fulfill. The gospel is, it was given to you as a gift. Now it is a costly gift, we talked about that last week, but it is a gift for you so that now for the very first time you are not a paralyzed person trying to run the race on your own, but God has regenerated your legs and you can run the race with the spirit. That's the difference between the gospel and religion. And what I want to see you guys in this text is that Paul's problem here is nothing to do with knowledge. Paul knew what was right. Guys, he literally wrote most of your New Testament, okay? Dude is a genius empowered by God. But that's what Paul is. He knows what is right. He has the knowledge of what it looks like to live a holy and righteous life. And he has the know-how. He knows the method by which he's supposed to do it. So the problem is not that he doesn't have enough knowledge or he doesn't have the know-how. The problem is that he doesn't have the power, and I think this is often the place where most of us get stuck. Guys, if you're here for the sermon last Thursday, it's pretty clear. We know what we need to do. Like for the vast majority of us, some of you guys are here for the first time and you're experiencing the word of God for the first time today, and that's awesome. But for literally all of you guys who were here last time, you know the right thing to do. The knowledge is not the problem. You know the know-how. That's not the problem. The problem is that you do not live a spirit-empowered life. And guys, I feel this, man, because listen, I know what God has called me to do. I know that God has called me to lay down my life for my wife. I married a beautiful, godly, generous woman named Josie Lee, she's incredible, she's awesome, she's taller than me, if you ever meet her, you'll know that right away, it's tragic for me. But anyways, moving on. So I married this woman, and when I married this woman, I went into a covenant with her and a covenant with God where God had called me to lay down my life to serve my wife. I have the knowledge, the theology is there, I even have the know-how, okay? It's called doing the dishes, all right? Listen, none of you guys be married yet, but when you get married, you'll understand that dishes are the source of all of your pain and troubles. Like, it's just true, just do them. It will help your life. Do not buy a house without a dishwasher. That's a horrible mistake and the cause for many marital problems. So dishes, dishes, okay? I know what it is like. Dishes, buying Trader Joe's flowers for $5.99, going to my wife and asking her intentional questions about her day. I know the know-how of what God has called me to do. The problem is, when I get home at a, after a 10-hour workday at 5.30, I don't want to. I have the knowledge. I even have the method, but I don't have the power. I don't want to. In some senses, I have the desire, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. Okay, here's what Paul is saying. What if what God is calling us to do is not just to have more determination, not just to have more discipline, but he wants to give us a life of spirit-empowered leadership. Here's my contention for us. What if we could live lives empowered by the Spirit? I know, I know, the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, he gets such a bad rep because people get into spiritual things and they get weird, you know? They're like, oh my gosh, like, what's your astrology sign? Like, they get weird, you know? They're like, I've been grounding a lot. It's like, shut up. Okay, gets a bad rep. Even within Christianity, gets an absolutely bad rep because people really get into it and then they end up becoming odd versions of themselves. Like, it's just true. But here's my contention for you. I think most of us, including me, who are saved, who have met Jesus, have the Spirit of God dwelling within us, but we're not asking him for help. So we're just trying to do Christianity on our own. We're like, oh, like just just be a little bit better, you know? Like just just muster up the discipline and the desire to be holy. Just stop, here's how we fight sin often in Christianity. We're like, sin is bad. Oh, just don't do it again. Oh, and then we do it. You know, we're still here. We don't have the power, but what God is trying to teach us is that because he has given us the spirit, we do have the power, not in ourselves, but by the power of God. So here's my question for you this week. This is an open-ended rhetorical and ambiguous question. What would it look like for you in your life if you're here and you have met Jesus and God has transformed everything about you for you to start living a spirit-empowered life? Guys, I don't know what it will be like for you But I'm asking myself that question. I'm like, man, what would it look like for me to wake up and sit across the table from someone who's in deep suffering, and instead of just thinking about my stupid brain and thoughts that I have, that I would ask the Spirit of God for what he wants to say to them. Like, what if instead of looking at your sin over and over again, filled with instant regret, and you're just saying, man, if I just had a little bit more knowledge or a little bit more know-how, You say, God, I need your spirit to give me power so I can fight this sin and actually see victory. What if on the days where you feel anxious and depressed and overwhelmed and you feel the burden of life on you, instead of just powering through it in your own strength, in your own flesh, you would actually ask the spirit of God who resides in you to give you the power to get through the day, to live with a sense of courage and hope, I think what Paul is trying to show us here is he has the desire but not the ability. But thanks be to God, the spirit of God has the ability so we can live spirit-empowered lives. As I call the worship men back up, guys, I just really res- you know resonate with Paul because I'm like, dude, The Christian life is so complex. Anyone who says it's easy is wrong. It's somewhat simple in the sense that you follow Jesus and you like, you know, die to yourself and pick up your cross, but it's hard, it's hard. Romans chapter six is a jarring text, even for me, guys. I've been walking with Jesus for a little bit longer and it's still really hard, but what I'm really thankful for is texts like this in Romans chapter seven where Paul gives language to our experience that I do not do what I want and I don't do what I don't want. And he ends this chapter by saying these words, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Okay, so here's how Paul finishes out this line of thought in Romans chapter seven. He says, wretched man that I am. That means he's hopeless without God, that he has nothing without him. Would you say that about yourself? See, the biggest problem with most of you in this room who do not yet know Jesus is that you fundamentally believe that you're a good person. You wouldn't call yourself wretched, you would call yourself pretty good. It's all coming to hear me on this. Good people go to hell every day. And if you do not realize your wretchedness, you will not be prepared and needing a deliverer. And that's what Paul says next, who will deliver me? He sees his hopelessness. He sees his brokenness. He sees his inconsistencies. And he says, this is what I need. I can't deliver myself. I need a deliverer. And then he ends with this. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Talk to me, there's only one person who can deliver you. But before you realize you need a deliverer, you need to realize that you are wretched, that you're hopeless, that you're broken and in need of saving. Religion helps people pretend like they're a good person until they die. Christianity teaches you you're a broken person, but you serve a good God who will deliver you on your day of death. So here's the overview of what we just talked about tonight. If you wanna live a life not defined by regret, you need to live a life defined by humility. Listen, this is convicting for me. If your life is not defined by humility, it's likely you aren't mature in your faith. Live a life defined by power. Guys, we need more than knowledge and know-how, we need the power of God to fight our sin. So as we close out our Peace with God series, We've gone through some crazy sermons, man, I'm not gonna lie. Romans 5, you cannot have peace of God without peace with him. Romans 6, we need to take our sins seriously. In Romans 7, the explanation of the human condition. But what I love about Romans 5, 6, and 7 is the chapter it's followed by. Right after Romans 7 is a chapter that John Piper calls the greatest chapter in the greatest book, and that's Romans chapter 8. So here's, I wanna end this series with us. Because of Jesus... If Jesus has become the Lord of your life, you can experience these eight truths from Romans chapter 8. And my hope is that you would see that more than your sin, more than your brokenness, more than your inconsistencies, and more than your regret, that these are the things that define who you are in Christ. Truth number one, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Without Jesus, you are condemned in your sin. But Jesus took upon your condemnation on the cross so that you could experience freedom in him. Truth number two, the spirit of God dwells within us. Listen, Christian, if you're here and you know Jesus, you are never alone. The spirit of God dwells within you and you can trust that he will empower you in the moments you need him. Truth number three, we are sons and daughters of God. In particular for some of you who come from broken homes, have not yet experienced the love of a steady father your father in heaven is steady for you we have a future hope it's all coming. we're not home yet okay this is like an Airbnb we're going to a way better home and because we have a future hope we can live with hope today Christians should be the most hopeful people in the world the most optimistic people in the world people who have the most joy and smile the most, even in the midst of suffering, why? Because we realize this body and this ho- this place is not our home. We have a future that we're heading to. The spirit of God helps us in our weakness. We are weak, we are broken, we are needy, and yet he comes to help us. Truth six, if God is for us, then no one can be against us. So I'll come here, here's so what's true of you. The literal God who made the universe, who made this place, who made your flesh, your bones, your heart, and your blood is for you. There's nothing to be afraid of in this life. The only thing, the worst thing that can happen for you in this life is death. And yet death is the deliverer to see him face to face. There's nothing you have to be afraid of. Truth number seven, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Neither height, nor depth, nor angels, nor rulers nor anything else. The love of God is holding us closely. And lastly, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. What follows Romans chapter six, an analysis of our sinfulness is Romans chapter seven, what it looks like to actually be a human following Jesus. And what follows Romans chapter seven is the greatest exaltation in all of the word. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Let me pray as we enter back into worship. Father, I'm thankful for moments like this where we get to be reminded that even in our weakness, in our brokenness, in our inconsistencies, in our pain, we can trust you. We can trust that the Spirit is indwelling within us, that he's empowering us to be faithful. We can trust that you want something beautiful for us. So Father, thank you that we're not alone, that in faith we are more than conquerors, that because of Jesus' death for us, that sin no longer has the final say. Father, I pray for people in this room who are here, who have grown up believing that they're good. Would you show them, Jesus, that they are wretched people in need of deliverance, and would you deliver us all? Jesus, I can't wait to see you face to face. Would you do it again in this room? would hearts be changed, would voices be loud, would hands be raised because we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In your name we pray, amen.